0: Kaplan, a TV writer in Hollywood with a PhD in philosophy.
1: And I'm Taylor Carman, a professor of philosophy at Barnard College, Columbia University. And I lecture and write books about things like truth, beauty, and the meaning of life, and existentialism and phenomenology.
0: And this is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, a philosophy podcast where we look at terrifying questions and think about them and try to find our way to a place <laughs> where we and you can move forward courageously. All right. So, what's our terrifying question this week, Eric? Well, the question is, is it impossible to become cool? Because if you're trying to be cool, that's uncool. (laughs) There's a paradox. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I've never taken a philosophy course which talked about being cool?
1: (laughs) That's almost a contradiction in terms. Yeah, yeah. Why is that?
0: Why is it that philosophers talk about being good and being
1: right, but not
0: about being cool?
1: How long has there been a concept of cool? The ancient Greeks didn't weren't cool, right? They didn't worry about being cool. I mean, they were cool, but they didn't know it. They didn't know it. Well, (laughs) that makes your point. Exactly. They did it without trying. But there was no such thing as trying to be cool in the Renaissance or the Middle Ages.
0: Yeah, I think it comes, well... I actually, one of the things I do want to talk about is possibly the Renaissance concept of sprezzatura ah. is related to our concept of cool. Interesting. But so precursors. I think cool comes from jazz, and I think it has something to do with, like, you're in a situation which is sort of objectively a source of a lot of anxiety, Yeah, but you're cool. <laughs> like, you don't, <laughs> you don't show anyone that you're anxious. You're calm. Like, it's got something to do with that, but then it also, it's just like... In American culture, particularly American youth culture, it's very positive. Oh, yeah. Like, you want to be cool, and if you're uncool, that's really bad, you know? So it's not just about grace under pressure. It's also this sort of very desirable
1: style of life. Well, I think the jazz concept was very specific. It was a very particular thing. Like, But, you know, in contemporary English, it's almost become a, just a generic word for, you know, whatever you approve of. That's stylish or fashionable or you approve of. That's cool. It's lost some of its specificity, but I think you're right that there's a worry that uh it has to be spontaneous.
0: Are you a subjectivist about cool like are you a cool relativist like
1: uh, <laughs> um I think maybe I may meant...
0: because i for, at least for the sake of argument, I want to say that I'm not uh, that I think yeah. a bunch of people can decide that wearing their hat in some dumb way is cool, and they can all be wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, what I think is there's a spectrum. I never like to say something is just subjective, subjective or objective. Okay. But I think this is pretty far on the subjective end. I think it's constituted by people sharing an attitude that something is cool. That's all that cool is. So you think,
0: like, I'm pretty sure, oh, I don't know. I'll use the hat example so as not to offend anybody because it's so generic. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's plenty of people wearing their hat in some dumb way who are convinced <laughs> that they're cool and they aren't.
1: But don't you think there could be a subculture in which that really is cool? I mean, precisely because enough people think that it is and they treat it that way and that's what they, But I, it... I feel like that would be an uncool subculture. <laughs> <laughs> like, aren't there uncool subcultures? I don't know. But maybe even that's just it depends on um, how they're viewed in, in a wider context. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm pretty on the subjective side on this one. Yeah, okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting. I brought this up to you, and I think we may have a quarry that's going to be more interesting than just us sitting around saying like, oh, yeah. Billy Joel, I think he's cool. <laughs> well, I don't think he's cool. Like, I think that would be a real waste of our listeners' time, just listening to us come up with different lists of who we think or what we think is cool. I have cool. plenty of opinions about what's cool and what isn't. Right. Yeah, but yeah, somehow, yeah. and this this may be that the it comes from an oral culture or something, that somehow us having a long conversation about what who and what is cool and what isn't seems seems to me like it's not the best use of our listeners' precious <laughs> totally time. Totally agree. Earth. Um but Absolutely. what I do think is interesting is I was like, "Hey, you can't try to be cool um because trying to be cool is uncool." And you said that that reminded you of something else, right?
1: Yeah, happiness. People say that the worst way to be happy is to try to be happy. Right. If you said about sort of trying to make yourself happy and pursuing happiness, Uh, maybe they're overstating the case a little bit, but they say, like, you're sure to fail if you do that. And the idea seems to be that happiness, you get it along the way while you're aiming at something else. Right, yeah. It has to be a kind of gift that you get only if you're aiming at something that you feel like is really worth doing for its own sake, rather than just for making you happy. I think there's something to that.
0: Right. Yeah, John Elster calls it an intrinsic side benefit.
1: Yeah. And he talks
0: about falling asleep. Uh Uh-huh. And he says that if you're trying to fall asleep, you're not going to fall asleep. You have to try to count sheep
1: and then have falling asleep come along anyway. I think actually there's a lot of cases that are like this, where the way I would put it is to say that there are some of these phenomena. And maybe, I mean, a lot of them are good. Maybe they're not all good. But they are essentially horizontal. Mm. They, as soon as you try to put them in the foreground and make them the object of your attention, they kind of disappear. It's sort of like your peripheral vision. You know how in nighttime you can only see some little faint lights if you look away from them because you get them in the... Oh, yeah. When I was trying to look at the comet a couple of years Uh, ago,
0: I could only see it by not looking at it.
1: Exactly. There's things like that that are horizontal and they're only real or genuine if they're horizontal. And I think happiness is like that. Um, You find that you're happy if you're doing something that's worthwhile. It makes you happy, but if if you do tend to foreground your happiness, you're probably going to end up seeking something more like pleasure or short-term gratification, which are famous for not leading to long-term happiness because they peter out and you get bored with them and then you think, well, so what? What's this all for? Maybe you're lacking purpose. So... So coolness, yeah. The problem with cool, if you sense that somebody's trying to be cool, they no longer look cool. Right. Uh, the person who's cool, especially in this older kind of more classic sense of cool, it looks like they don't care. They've got a certain kind of like, I'm too, you know, a little aloofness and a little like sloppiness and maybe sort of they're, they're not worried about how they look. And that's why they look so good. Right. And if, if you're too self-conscious about how you look, you're, you're not like that's not a great look. Right. Right. And it's
0: interesting that, like, um, I think this structure comes up in a lot of places that, like, um, I've it, it, I, I related to this paradox that if someone, uh, who came up with this, if someone says, um, I'm going to surprise you over the next minute. Oh, yeah. And then you just, the minute goes by, <laughs> and you're like, you didn't, because you didn't do anything. And you're like, aha, you expected me to surprise you, and I didn't, and therefore I did I see that sounds like a cheap victory <laughs> but but it's strange that the, yeah. it it's i think they're they're sort of conceptually related because I think the effort mm. to be spontaneous and the 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 request to be surprised oh here's another one which which mm-hmm. this is kind of me restating character guard but I do think he believed this that he thought mm-hmm. the most dangerous thing we can do with our lives is to play it safe oh yeah right and it's sort of like huh well but but right i mean but then it's not it is dangerous to play it safe uh, but then it's not playing it safe is it so so i find that that's that's strange that there are certain goals yeah and if you were to put the goal if you were to express the goal in the form of an imaginary command mm-hmm. it's almost like coolness is saying be
1: cool yeah but don't listen to me yeah <laughs> you know i wonder if something like this is true of courage i was just thinking about courageous I mean, I'm not sure it's a pure case of this, but I'm kind of wondering if the more you're telling yourself, okay, I've got to be courageous now, the more you're aware of the effort to screw up your courage, the more you're kind of shaking and trembling and getting nervous. I mean, people who really act courageously, oftentimes they've got this kind of cool about them, which is they're acting in the moment spontaneously without thinking too much. And they're really not completely absorbing the risk that they're taking, which is what allows them to act Courageously. So maybe some things have to be peripheral.
0: Yeah, I thought you were going to say love. Yeah. Because it almost seems like let's take a loving gesture. What's a good loving gesture?
1: Hug. Pulling your children aside to give them a hug.
0: Yeah, you pull your child aside to give them a hug. You shouldn't be thinking, I'm a loving dad, so I should hug my children. Right.
1: That's (laughs) not a very
0: loving thing to be thinking. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of strange. But this is making this cool thing start to be more terrifying because it's sort of like, oh, I want to be a loving person, but I can't become one by trying. Yeah. What am I supposed to do?
1: Ah, That is actually, you know, that's I find that more terrifying than the cool example. Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
0: And then here's the other thing that I I just want to dot the I here, which is it seems to create a kind of aristocratic view of human beings, because if you can't try to be cool, but clearly some people are cool well, I guess some people were just born cool <laughs> right. and some people weren't. And, and I, it sounds like Calvinists may say something like this about love, uh-huh. that some people were born full of
1: love yeah.
0: and others weren't. And that's just the way it is. You can't try.
1: I think the really terrifying part of the love question is, like, suppose it dawns on me one day as I'm sort of thinking back over my life and my actions that I don't seem like a very loving person. Now, what can I do about it? If I try to go out and start hugging people at random or telling all my colleagues that I love them and doing nice things for people, it's such an effort that I may be thinking, boy, this shows you what a rotten person I am. That I'm <laughs> like, Nobody who's really loving does this kind of thing. They're going out and making a project of sort of showing the world that they're being loving. It looks like a ditch you can't dig yourself out of very easily. Right. How do you manage to – it might be that you have to just wait for a kind of grace to descend upon you, and you're like Scrooge. Suddenly you just feel it in your heart and it's spontaneous and it's effortless. This is the effortlessness is what I think what we're zooming in on with the cool effortless with courage and lovingness and so on. There has to be a kind of spontaneity or effortlessness for it to be genuine. One more thing about cool that just occurred to me. Uh you know, the reason I'm less worried about cool than loving is because I really care if I'm a caring person. And this goes back to the subjectivity thing. Maybe it doesn't matter whether you're cool. Right. But what if I'm not cool? So what? Who cares? Right. And then it occurs to me, some of the people who are thought of as very cool maybe seem like the people who could not care less whether they're so cool So this seems not. like to And set that's up what's so
0: cool about them. To set up a yeah. a, a particularly— tragic outcome for you because (laughs) you don't care about being cool and you do care about being loving and therefore you're cool I
1: get to be cool
0: (laughs) like
1: like how did Slavoj Žižek ever get to be cool Maybe I shouldn't have named his name, but um, there you go. Well, you said he was cool. He is.
0: <laughs> I don't, if you think he's cool? I don't think he's going to write into the podcast. How dare you tell <laughs> people? That I, you know. In fact, that'd be pretty uncool. It if would he be did. very uncool, but so, he won't. Yeah, yeah. So this is a paradox because it does seem to me that I don't want to say people are either loving or they're not, and there's nothing they can do about it. No. And if they're not loving, tough luck. Like that seems to be both a cruel thing to say and yeah. false. Yeah. Because people certainly grow and change and and by the way, caring about being loving, it's not the worst thing you can care about. I mean if, if there was two people and one of them was concerned that he wasn't enough of a loving father and the other one was concerned, that um his satellite football league would do better <laughs> and he wanted to ask me to put money down as to who's going to be a better father 10 years from now i would uh-huh. say
1: the person who's worried about it is <laughs> more likely to be yeah. a loving father than the one who really doesn't give a care yeah right and I, right right i mean uh, the fact that somebody's worried that they haven't been a very loving person maybe shows you that they've got some love in them because the person who's really not a right. loving person couldn't care less whether they're a loving person they or wouldn't not.
0: care so this is such a puzzle it's just we know that this structure does exist because i can construct it and say if you want to be someone who's not trying to do anything right now you will fail by trying to do it by definition (laughs) (laughs) so if right now you want to be a person who's not trying to do anything and right now you're trying to do that you're failing (laughs) so whether this structure applies to happiness or cool or love who knows But it does exist.
1: Yeah. So I just want to establish that as a beachhead into this problem. (laughs) Okay. But what I would say, though, I think these are not pure paradoxes. Okay. I think they are paradoxical tendencies. Okay. But Jan Elster's example of falling asleep gives us a hint that it's not inescapable, right? It's not impossible to try to fall asleep. You just have to do it indirectly. In a special way. You have to take an oblique sort of route to it there's a technique of relaxation which is to just think about two different things like your left foot and the sound of the noise outside your window and if you just hold those two things it tends to kind of polarize your attention and it kind of relaxes your mind i'm sorry are you still talking i i drifted off um, okay
0: um, For God's no, sake. let's pay attention let's, let's let's take a break let's take a break let's <laughs> i'm i'm going to take a long nap and then we'll come back Okay, we're back. Oh, I feel so much better. I was so relaxed. Um. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) So with falling asleep, there's things you can do to sort of get yourself into the kind of state where you will be more receptive or likely to drift into the thing you want to do. And actually, I think there's analogies with courage and love and maybe cool too. You have to get into a kind of relaxed state of not worrying too much about whether you're cool, but you can steer yourself in the direction that'll maybe wind up with you okay. being cool.
0: What's the difference between steering myself into a direction and trying?
1: Um. Good question. I think what I'd just say is there's different kinds of trying. Uh-huh. There's exertion trying, and then there's like letting be trying, sort of like relaxing and... Being receptive to something, you know. Um, Just like there's a lot of different kinds of moving your body. There's running and hopping and skipping and running and walking. There's lots of different kinds of trying, and they're not all the same. And maybe two of them are incompatible. You can't do both at once. You can't walk and run at the same time. You have to choose. Right. And maybe it's like this. Can you swim and run at the same time? I don't think you can. Probably not, no.
0: Um, So (laughs) what I thought was interesting about that was, are there two me's? in this project <laughs> is there the me uh, yeah. that yeah. wants to fall asleep and then the me that forgets about the fact that it wants to fall asleep
1: ah uh, let me let me let me counter that with a different picture which is it's it's like you're a boat and there's the front of the boat and the back of the boat. What are those called?
0: I think all boats have fronts and backs. Could you have a boat that had only front? No, no, no. But I mean, oh, there's it's... names for these. What? There's there's <laughs>
1: stern and bow and and. Oh yeah,
0: the stern and bow. Right. One of them is the front. I can't and one of remember them is which the back. is which. Our listeners can write in and tell us. No, the bow is the front uh-huh. because the bow sprit uh, okay. is that lady on the front of the boat. So the bow is the front. The stern is the back. Isn't it a bow
1: instead of a bow? Bow. The bow and bow. stern. Okay, so you're like that. And what you've got is this rudder in the back, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not like there's two U's. There's no two boats. There's, but the, But if you're in the back steering with the rudder you would do this indirect kind of steering, right? You're sort of like with the rudder, and that kind of moves things, and hopefully... Well, there
0: are two yous in your story, because there's the boat is me, and then the guy steering the boat is also me. Oh, well,
1: that's true. Okay, you're steering your own boat. Then. <laughs> I think there are two <laughs> boats. There are two people in that story. But there's two parts um, of the boat. That's true, too. But it's one effort. The steering is going on, as it were, from behind. Uh, is uh, Sorry, it's a pathetic image, but I'm just trying to think of like how you do this indirect thing. No,
0: it's a good image. And here's another thing that's worrying me about all this which is that our discussion might be a bad thing Hmm. because if it's true that the best way to be happy is not to try to be happy, Mm -hmm. and then we say, you know, the best way to try to be happy is to forget about it, we're now bringing to consciousness Something that's better left unconscious. <laughs> yeah. You know, what I, you, oh, I you, you
1: understand my worry? I, I, I didn't yeah. say it
0: as clearly as I wish I could have. I but... think
1: that sitting around talking about being happy is probably not the best way to be happy.
0: Right. Of course. So what's the goal? What is the yeah. function of what we're doing right now?
1: I think it's got to have some point other than making you and me happy or even other people happy. I think it's got to have some purpose.
0: But it's engaged in the
1: project of clarifying happiness. But we're confronting terror, Eric. We're confronting terrifying right. questions, which is, you know, right. that doesn't seem like a way to become happy. That sounds like a way to become terrified and, and frightened. Oh, I always viewed it as a way of being
0: less terrified. Like, my hope was uh, if we yeah. confronted them, yeah. we would we would either learn
1: that they shouldn't terrify us or we would just build up our courage muscles (laughs) so here's what I think we're doing I think we're cultivating our courage so that uh, we might end up more comforted and happy and have some equanimity but we also are taking a risk hopefully we're not playing it safe completely we're letting some of these questions simmer and fester, and maybe they'll be the source of anxiety in the future. I like to think of it as a risk-taking adventure.
0: Well, it would make sense that the way to practice courage is to do something that's genuinely scary. Right,
1: yeah, but not just in order to cultivate your courage, uh okay, we've got another we've got the courage problem again, too, yeah, I so what I think is if happiness is a side effect, what did Jan elster called it an intrinsic an intrinsic side benefit intrinsic side and, benefit intrinsic side if happiness is an intrinsic side benefit of doing terrifying questions, it seems like the more immediate goal is something like confronting terrifying questions to see if we can gain some wisdom and maybe some maybe some comfort, but mm-hmm. the the direct goal is thinking hard about some tough questions, and that's the real goal. It would be a cheap sort of thing to say, okay, let's get to work making ourselves feel good about this stuff. That would be, we'd be evading the real um, project if we did that. Like, let's let's you and me think about 10 reasons right up front at the beginning of the episode about how we can make ourselves feel better about free will. (laughs)
0: Right. So we have to, to me, it, it does, it's funny how water enters into both of our... Metaphor mm. is to me. It sort of feels mm. like you you paddle out to the point where the stream takes over, uh-huh. and then and then uh-huh. the stream carriage you
1: away. I like that. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's about sleep. Sleep is definitely that way.
0: Oh, by the way, do you have a copy of the phenomenology of perception within grabbing distance?
1: It's in the next room. I just moved it from here to the next room.
0: There's a great thing about falling asleep. Do you remember that?
1: Oh, I they, That I'm they, trying
0: they, to fall asleep and suddenly I'm on the other side and I have become part of an immense lung. Oh. Maybe that's enough. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. He's got two great examples yeah. of this. Is transitioning. Like, one of them is trying to fall asleep where somehow Uh i let go of myself Mm -hmm. and then i become simply part of an immense lung Lung. and i'm like
1: yeah
0: that's true yeah when i fell asleep because i used to do this by the way as a kid i tried to be aware of the moment that i would fall asleep yes yes and and then i was sort of like i never was aware of the moment i was falling asleep but i was aware that now i'm asleep because i was confronting i think a book the size of a cliff. Right. <laughs> I was just standing facing this immense book.
1: Yeah. So clearly, at that point in the story, I'm asleep. Well, but this is more like a pure paradox, I think, actually, of trying to be aware of what I was calling before the horizontal phenomenon uh-huh. as foreground. Rather than background, and you'll never do it. It's like, and Merleau Ponty also talks about: um, you can look at the frame of a picture, but you cannot look at the boundaries of your visual field. Right, and that really is in principle. That's not. That's a little different from the falling asleep thing. It's not that it's hopelessly impossible to make any effort at all. It just has to be the right oblique, indirect kind of effort. But what is true is that you will never make the horizon the foreground. So you will never be aware of the moment you fall asleep. You will never be aware of the moment you become happy, right? With happiness, it's a similar thing. Like I've found that whenever I'm happy, it dawns on me that I've been happy. Mm -hmm. Not that, oh, wow, at two o'clock, I started being happy. It creeps up and you don't notice it. It sort of overtakes you and then you're in it. I think death is the same way, not to put too gloomy a point on this. I think what's fascinating about death, and this is much the way Heidegger describes it in Being in Time, is it is essentially horizontal. You're never at it, and you're projecting into it, but it will never be foreground and something you can really deal with, like something in your world, because it's a horizon of your world.
0: By the way, we were having a discussion, or perhaps we will have a discussion, about the self. Um, depending on what order we air these. Is myself also a horizontal phenomenon?
1: I think so. Yes, exactly right. And and that's why when Hume says he looks into his mind and he doesn't find a self, well, of course not. That's right. It's like trying to find the edges of your visual field by moving your eyes around. You can't do it. I think that's right. I think it's horizontal. You know, the other thing I wanted to say about that, and now that it's relevant to this topic, I'm glad I get a chance to. I think we're very confused, and we'll always be, about what to say about a person in relation to their death Hmm. because one's very strong intuition of course is to say as soon as they die they're gone yes and that's what we say but another irresistible thing to say is that once they're dead and they're lying in their coffin or on their bed you say there they are Uh that's them that's grandpa he's upstairs (laughs) Mm -hmm. um he's there and he's gone. And I think that is a very primitive conflict of deep intuitions that I think no philosophy will ever unravel. And it's the source of, I think, a lot of religious attitudes about the soul and the afterlife and so on. I mean, I think at a very instinctive level, we want to say both things. And we kind of know that we can't, and we don't know what to do with that.
0: So as a philosopher, how do you decide which of the problems you think are insoluble, and which of them are soluble?
1: Oh yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes it's centuries and centuries of futile effort makes me think. Okay. All right, fine. You know, I mean, if <laughs> if all so many of the great problems of actual mathematics and science have been solved, you know, with a fair bit of genius and effort, and the basic problems of philosophy have made maybe virtually no progress in 2,400 years, maybe it's just part of the nature of the problem. That's a cheap answer, though. A different answer would be. I think some of the arguably insoluble, unsolvable problems are those to do with what's most fundamental in the way we understand ourselves and relate to the world. And it is exactly the same kind of foreground horizon thing. They're horizontal, and so they will never be just foregrounded problems that we can get solutions to, because, precisely because they're necessarily background.
0: So I feel like with some of these problems, if you hooked me up to a polygraph, I think I would say they're insoluble. Yeah. But I think it's good to try and solve them. Uh-huh. And when I'm trying to solve them, I have to pretend mm-hmm. that I don't think the first thing. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. otherwise, I'm just going to be sort of blathering. I don't know exactly, <laughs>
1: exactly what <laughs> I I know what you mean. There are philosophers who seem to have just given up on problem solving, and it can be irritating. Wittgenstein said this about Russell. He said that Russell was somebody, it was a philosopher who'd lost his problems or something like that. Wittgenstein was the paradigm of somebody who was constantly worrying about having gotten it right.
0: And that's so weird because I have heard Wittgensteinians yeah. be super smug. Yes. Because they're sort of like, yep. well, there's different ways of using language. Exactly. Yeah. And they they can give you that answer while they're frying eggs. <laughs> exactly. They could be totally making an omelet, and yeah. you say, "Well, what do you think about this?" Oh, there's different ways of using language.
1: I and think psss, that's yeah, you know. that's an occupational hazard of late Wittgensteinianism being like the late Wittgenstein. It can easily lead to smug, pat answers about that. Oh, well, there's a language game here, and there's a so family is up, what's there. So how come he was so tormented on. and so admirably committed
0: to problems, <laughs> but he created a philosophy that makes people smug and
1: and patronizing? Well, it's the <laughs> difference between the innovator and the disciples and the lead and the, mm-hmm. you know. So I think you can probably become smug about just about anything, even if it's a very unsmug idea originally well here's what puzzles me is that
0: there seems to be these views that if you fight to reach them, they're cool. but if you just if you're not fighting anymore and you just think they're true, yeah, they're really uncool. and and how can that be because aren't they true or not true like why would it be that like if it's all language games then Wittgenstein worked really hard to discover it and we should be happy that we don't need to do all that hard work we don't need to be you know tormented closeted weirdos like Wittgenstein we can be happy we can live our lives he's already taught us it's all language games and we're good but that seems like a wrong position I'm not sure why I
1: think he was really aware that invoking a concept like language game or family resemblance was really a tool it was really something you should help yourself to out of a very difficult problem. But once it becomes a tool that's too ready to hand, as it were, and you're just using it for everything, Mm -hmm. it's like, was it H.L. Mencken who said, for the person whose only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail?
0: Oh, I would be pretty confident with somebody more like Longinus. (laughs) If H.L. Mencken invented
1: that, he's a very impressive figure. I could be wrong about that. I don't know who said it first. Oh, I know the other thing I was going to say is that about what's solvable and unsolvable in philosophy. Mm -hmm. I think you're right that we ought to keep worrying about problems, terrifying questions. We should keep pressing into them. But I do think there's a different impulse, which is to make philosophical problems or questions into problems that have solutions, Mm -hmm. and to be invested in a theoretical solution to a philosophical problem. I'm not saying I'm against it, but I do think that can turn into a futile exercise, because there's no prospect of progress.
0: Well, one of the things I liked about Wittgenstein is that he says that the difference between talent and genius is that genius is talent pursued with courage and Hmm. clearly he was very talented (laughs) like he was very good at doing philosophy but what's really cool about him and it's interesting looping back to cool like he was much cooler than russell i would say is that he pursued (laughs) philosophical problems with courage yes
1: yeah i think that's right
0: so how does that relate to your worry that courage is best oh. pursued without knowing that you're being courageous?
1: Oh, because I don't think... Did he
0: know he was being courageous? Well, that's he what must... I
1: wonder. See, I'm just guessing, but I would hope. I mean, the the more admirable image of him would be that he wasn't setting out to be courageous. I mean, maybe he actually was. Um, you know, Ray Monk's brilliant biography of Wittgenstein called The Duty of Genius really does make clear that he had an idea the best kind of life to live would be if you're a genius to really pursue that as a kind of duty and imperative Mm -hmm. to pursue your genius. So maybe there was a part of him, a little narcissistic maybe, that was trying to be the genius and to feel like you're you're saddled with this obligation of being a genius, and so you're going to push that to it's an extreme.
0: Was he trying to not be narcissistic?
1: I think in a lot of cases, yes, he was. I think he was struggling with that.
0: And that's an interesting paradox, right? Because yes, it involves yeah. looking in the mirror and seeing... How good you're going towards your goal of not being a narcissist uh-huh. and you're looking in the mirror to do that.
1: I think he was aware of that, too, actually. I think he was pretty self-conscious about that.
0: How about the risks of self-consciousness.
1: Yeah, there's this story about him, you know, calling up a friend. I don't know if it was the middle of the night or just some saying, I have to talk to you immediately. And, you know, it looked like some emergency But she met him someplace, and he sat her down. And then he started detailing all the things he'd done, the bad things he'd done, I think when he was a teacher in Austria. And I did this, and it was like a confession. And it didn't involve her at all. And she was thinking, this couldn't wait? Right. It's like, why did I have to listen to this now? And it looked so self-indulgent, and yet it was an attempt to get rid of his pride, his ego, and confess. But it also looks like a very self-serving sort of gesture. I think he was... Facing this sort of paradox. And failing to face it. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) right, right. I mean, he was missing the mark by trying to hit the target. And I think a nice image of him would be that he was not doing what he was doing in philosophy in order to be courageous. He was, uh, courage is what was necessary for this, but he was doing it something like for its own sake, because these problems are deep. Right. Maybe he had a knack for it, and so he had to do this. The courage was necessary. It's what you get along the way, hopefully, but it wasn't the point of it. He said something very nice, too, and I think it's in those remarks in Culture and Value, where he said something like, you should aspire to be loved rather than admired. Mm -hmm. I think seeking admiration is very bad, in his view.
0: Right. Is seeking love any better? Uh, Shouldn't you seek to love rather than to be loved? Didn't somebody pretty good say that, like St. Francis? (laughs) Maybe maybe you should
1: seek to be worthy of being loved or something like that. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'm just wondering, like, supposing we were friends with Wittgenstein, and we know he's this brilliant, tormented, closeted, gay Austrian genius Yeah. <laughs> and he's calling us up in the middle of the night and saying he wants to confess to us and his goal <laughs> is to deal with his narcissism right right what intervention could we make like he says philosophy is a therapy like physician heal thyself like what in- intervention could we make and And yeah. I think I don't want to out anybody. Yep. I have friends like this, I'm sure you do too. Yeah. um yep. so he calls you up in the middle of the night. Taylor, Taylor, come over, I need to confess my sins so I can deal with my narcissism right. what do you and you're thinking his effort to deal with his narcissism is suffering from the paradox that we've been thinking about. You cannot seek uh, happiness, yeah. Uh, you cannot seek to be cool, yeah. and you cannot foreground your quest to not be a narcissist. <laughs> right. It's horizontal. What would yeah. you say to him?
1: Ah, and by the way, yeah. what he did was actually pretty bad. He
0: hit some kid, yeah. and then his family bribed the judge so that he wasn't punished. I
1: think that's right. No wonder he felt bad. So was,
0: yeah. I used to think when I was reading these biographies of Wittgenstein yeah. that he was guilty about nonsense.
1: But I think he was actually guilty of some... Things that were bad. I, so anyway, so he calls you up. And says, I'm not sure how unusual that was in schools that way, but but the parents got very upset. I think he crossed a line. I mean, I'm sure he was very impatient.
0: Well, I also think it wasn't the crime, it was a cover-up. Like, oh, Like, if you're so moral you shouldn't be having your family bribe the officials to get out of <laughs> well, that's for you know, sure. something you did that was wrong. Like, that's just sleazy. But I, I seem <laughs> to know?
1: remember, too, that the students later in life remembered how awful he was.
0: Right. So it's funny. There's one picture of Wittgenstein, which is that he was this incredibly hyper moral person yeah. who was just getting bent out of shape. And that the crime was that I lay in bed two minutes too late when I could have been <laughs> studying philosophy. <laughs> yeah. And that's a different person. But there's yeah. a person who actually did some bad things. Yeah. He's trying not to be a narcissist. Yeah. And he's just annoyed you and woken you up. And very difficult. And what do you say to this person?
1: I think I'd say, Ludwig, I'm really interested in hearing this, and let's meet tomorrow, (laughs) you know, at 2 o'clock, and I'll be well-rested, and there's some things I need to do in the morning, and I just need a little time, and then I'd be happy to sit down with you and talk to you. (laughs) I mean, I'm just... And do you think that would help to heal him from his narcissism? Maybe. Maybe it would be a reminder that, like, I'm not on call 24 hours a day. I think if I said that to him, it might sort of so ruffle his feathers, he'd be offended and embarrassed, and then... I, you know, who knows? I mean, he was a very difficult person. You see, one of but. these things that makes me wonder is
0: whether happiness and moral self-improvement are more fruitfully viewed as group projects
1: mm, Yeah, right. <laughs> than ah. as
0: singular projects. Oh, that's
1: what Dostoevsky thought.
0: I think. Oh, what did he think? He was a smart guy. Yeah, player.
1: I think when he... So he gives these examples. They're sort of secularized, fictionalized examples of things that are actually sacraments, like confession, when characters confess he makes a point of showing you how it has to be social and collective and sort of out in the open, or else it doesn't count. So
0: what did Wittgenstein do wrong by trying to make his confession—well, one thing is he did it on his own terms. Yeah, there's Which that. you don't—if there's a, a communal situation of confession, like, maybe one thing you might have said is, like, Wittgenstein— you should be confessing to those parents back in Austria, not to me. Right, right, exactly.
1: Yeah. There's in uh, Brothers Karamazov, this uh, mysterious visitor comes to uh, Zosima when Zosima is remembering this episode from when he's younger. And this guy comes to him and confesses that he killed a woman, you know, years ago before he was married. And Zosima is sort of saying, look, don't tell me. I mean, you know. And it's a kind of criticism of Catholic confession. You tell a priest, and then he doesn't tell anybody, and then nobody knows, and that doesn't count. Mm -hmm. I wanted to just say, uh, in connection with courage, I've been reading some of uh, Wittgenstein's diaries, and he mentions Kierkegaard fairly frequently, and says at one point that he thinks Kierkegaard had much more courage than he has. Did you read the Kierkegaard biography? Which one? The Graf?
0: It's a big, thick
1: one. Yeah. I thought that was really great. It's really interesting, yeah.
0: Like he could not go along for too long without martyring himself and abnegating himself publicly yeah yeah and it does it does raise the question like public humiliation as a as a method of dealing with your self-obsession or your narcissism yeah everyone pay attention look like it's like that
1: joke about like like i'm nothing i'm nothing look who thinks he's nothing right (laughs) Exactly. Uh, It reminds me of Hegel's criticisms of monasticism. It's like the more you try to get rid of your Lust and appetites and bodily needs by entering a monastery and wearing a hair shirt and depriving yourself. The more you filled up your life with nothing but your obsession about your desires and your needs and your sinfulness and so on, and it's taking up your whole life. Right. It's exactly got this paradoxical result. Right. So hegel was more of like, just go think about sports. <laughs> exactly. And then you'll become absolute spirit. If, you know, without
0: even trying. You'll be the absolute spirit and good at sports. So let's take a break um, and go
1: deep into our souls and refresh ourselves <laughs> so. and then come back.
0: Okay, that was good. So, um one thread that I want to continue is this idea of secular mm-hmm. sacraments. Mm-hmm. That there might be a way to let the community or friends or another person help us out of some of these paradoxes. Mm-hmm. Like to start with cool, like maybe you're like I'm not cool and I don't want to try to be cool. Okay, well join my band. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty cool and you'll just play in the band for a few years. We'll travel around. And then lo and behold, maybe the guy who joined the band or the girl who joined the band 10 years later is cool without trying to be cool, just by trying to like listen to good music and hang out. And
1: Yeah, that's how Ringo Starr became so cool. That's how
0: he became cool.
1: Yeah, because he was hanging around with John Lennon and Paul McCartney.
0: I heard a funny story about a friend who met Ringo Starr because they were both in recovery mm. and he ran into him at the meeting and and it was in the wrong place. So they're crossing the street and Ringo is like, hey, nice to meet you. My name's Richard. And my friend is like, I know who you are. <laughs> And I think that was a cool thing of my friend to say because it kind of cuts through the BS. Yeah. It's like, right. yes, everybody can recognize Ringo Starr. And if you're Ringo Starr, you don't say, nice to meet you. I'm Ringo Starr. It's like, yeah, we know who you are. Um, but is that, yeah. in, like, to get out of the this, this sort of sophomoric example of being cool, yeah. is that how to become loving? Mm-hmm. Is to just enter into relationships with people and if they make demands on you, to take them seriously? Maybe.
1: That's right. It's like falling asleep. Maybe you have to be receptive, you have to cultivate an attitude of receptivity rather than exertion of effort. Mm -hmm. I mean, when people say love is a kind of gift, you know, I think you find that your life has been blessed with these relationships that you found yourself with. that kind of fell in your lap and it was up to you to pursue them and nurture them and so on. But they weren't things you invented. But
0: that seems to get into some of that, like the paradoxes of grace and work.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which is that if
0: you say, oh, well, if you're lucky enough to have love fall into your lap, then great that seems to be this sort of weird aristocratic view mm. that some people are lovers and some aren't, uh. and they're selfish jerks. Right. <laughs> it's not on anybody to... This, the lovers can't be proud. And I think it might be true. We don't want the lovers to be proud of being lovers. Yeah. But we kind of do want the selfish jerks to kind of like, stop it, take a little bit of yeah. an effort and just say, well, <laughs> when love falls into my lap, I'll let you know. Geez.
1: Well, yeah, that's right. You can't spend your whole life just being passive and waiting around for stuff to happen. You need to pursue something. There's a place for effort. Right. But there's some things that may be Yeah, to really respect them is to give them the space to grow and to let them happen as they will instead of trying to administer or manage them. Right.
0: So what is the best attitude? Because I just realized the thing that I just said I hate, which is that you're trying to be less narcissistic. So form a relationship with someone. And when they ask you to do stuff for them, do it because I think that's horribly narcissistic. Like, <laughs> Is it? It seems to be the attitude of someone who's treating who's treating their relationships as like their, their gym trainers uh, or something like that. Well, then like now, there that.
1: may be another—this may be another instance in which you have to sort of fake it till you make it, right? Right. It starts out an artificial effort, and maybe it's all sort of tainted by narcissism and sort of hidden egoism and ulterior motive and so on. But the more you get into the habit, the more you just— cultivate a habit of doing things uh, for the right reasons that it's the good thing to do and it's nice and you're supporting somebody and so on and you no longer are thinking about how it reflects on you or anything like that but it it seeps into your habits and your character um so is it like falling asleep I think a lot of these things are like that yeah I think so and then before you know it you're nice (laughs)
0: Right. it's a strange thing and it's sort of like you're faking it till you make it but if you put a big sign on the wall that says, I'm it till I make it, that'll make it harder because you'll just be like, you should realize that the, what you're doing and then you should forget that's what you're you've got to forget. And it, And that still right. strikes me as paradoxical because you need to remember to forget.
1: Yeah. But I think we do that. Yeah. After all, there are ways to sort of try to forget things. You forget about something by focusing your attention on something else. And right. that's not that hard to do. That's true. Go on a vacation, get out of town and, you know, read a book. And actually, you know, the best way to do that is to change your habits. You know, when people used to talk about crack, people are hopelessly addicted, crack addicts, and it's impossible to get them off because they're so hopelessly addicted. A lot of that is bogus. And it turned out, even with rats, when they get really addicted to drugs, you can get them off the addiction by putting them in a new physical environment, a new cage with a different maze and different toys and different rats to hang out with. And then pretty soon, they're not hitting the button to get the drug anymore. And I think there's a huge effect of behavioral routine that gets people out of the mental state and the attitudes that they're in. Just, you know what it's like to go on vacation vacation and get out of town. And suddenly it's like you're seeing everything differently. You don't notice that you haven't been checking your email constantly. Or sometimes when I go out of town, I think, wow, there's all that stuff in my apartment and I don't miss it at all. Right. So it's not that hard to kind of indirectly or obliquely stage manage some stuff in order that this new attitude will come over you. It doesn't always work. Right. I guess I see this sort of progression
0: from Martin Luther to Kierkegaard to Wittgenstein As a little bit of a a sign that we need institutions to be good people. Yeah, absolutely. That the obsessive focus on the purity of the soul and individual righteousness is bad news.
1: I think so too. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's right. I think it absolutely happens out in the world. So if
0: you were given the job of creating a series of institutions in which Wittgenstein and Kierkegaard would be happier and achieve their goals of being loving, non-self-obsessed weirdos that they both had, I believe. What institution <laughs> would you create? How would you do oh, it? Boy. Oh, I don't know. You don't have to come up with your whole Taylor's Republic right now, but what's sort of a step in that direction?
1: I mean, Wittgenstein had it pretty nice that he got to sort of just, you know, have his rooms in Cambridge or whatever and just talk off the top of his head for people to sort of come and listen to him. See, I
0: I feel like that may be the worst thing for Wittgenstein. Yeah, yeah. That maybe he really should have Uh. been told stop being so arrogant and learn to cooperate with the people that you're actually working with because that's the strange thing about him is that he was utterly contemptuous of philosophy professors yeah but he was a philosophy (laughs) professor and he had a lot of respect for like
1: yeah, you know no, you're the right.
0: peasants in Austria, yeah. but he didn't hang out with them and when he did they hated him. And he was so, so <laughs> and he was benefiting from the system that he had contempt for. So it. it seems to me that it's sort of like I know you think this guy who's in the philosophy department
1: is a self-righteous boob, but but <laughs> you need to to play with him and make nice and sort of—he <laughs> also had contempt for his fellow soldiers, you know, when he was in the trenches. and oh, did World he really? War, he couldn't stand the people around him because he was from an aristocratic background and they were ordinary folk, and he thought they were just unbelievably crude and they made fun of him and they didn't like him and he, he didn't right. get get along with them at all. And he 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 was looking down his nose at them. And I think again, my impression is he was self-conscious about this too because he wanted to be just another uh, soldier. I mean, he volunteered to go, and then he couldn't stand being around these people. So. I'm t- I'll take back my remark about he had a good what I'm, I guess I meant to say was he was lucky that he got to gratify his own need to just sit around and think and talk because they indulged him but maybe it would have been better for him if he had been required to go help pick up garbage out on the streets and volunteer at an animal shelter or <laughs> do something sort of Yeah. helps I mean people. he did do some interesting volunteer work he was volunteering at a hospital or something wasn't he in the second world war I think he was actually doing yeah. volunteer. So, so there you go I mean he was trying and you know in the 30s he was a- talking, at least. He didn't do it, but he was talking about he wanted to move the Soviet Union and just be a worker. But again, that's... Well, he wouldn't have
0: lasted too long there. Uh, that's my
1: prediction. Exactly. I mean, the problem with that is that looks like a self-aggrandizing, self-martyring gesture that was unrealistic. I think a modest community service. <laughs> Maybe that would do him some good. I yeah. think it should be something more like a
0: constant effort to treat the people he was really dealing with in his real life, not his fantasy life, With love and respect. Mm -hmm. I think that would have been good. Yeah. And that includes, like, Russell, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right, right. Well, this would be a cool, like, if we ever break out our dolls, or Wittgenstein and and Russell dolls, this would be a cool play to do with them. Do a little
1: dialogue, yeah. Okay, closing thoughts? Yeah, we talked about something like character. A terrifying thought that's creeping back up on me is maybe somebody like Wittgenstein they could be trying to do all these things that you and I are sort of suggesting. And yet there it, it could be this kind of Oedipus-like fate that by the end of the day, it'll just look in retrospect like everything they did was a further manifestation of their fundamental character. I mean, this is too pessimistic, but... Well, but here's an
0: optimistic spin on it. He was a glorious comet flashing across the sky. Yeah. And even if he himself didn't achieve his personal goals, in a weird way he did because... He's made my life better. Yeah, that's right. I learned a lot by reading him. Yeah, and not so... just
1: because he was a towering genius and made a great contribution, but because I think a lot of people who read Wittgenstein, especially the later work and are very impressed by it, like I was, really do admire the kind of honesty and courage about it. Like he's really cutting right through all kinds of scholastic academic conventions and writing in this very plain, almost kind of simple Biblical language, you know, that uh, just cuts through all kinds of BS and is so refreshing.
0: You love him for that? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, I really do. And I think a lot of people do. I think that's why yeah, he, I he attracts so many followers and imitators is because there's something just like a huge breath of fresh air and you know, God bless him. Yeah. Like that, he did this instead of doing some other thing that would have been self-serving and easier or more promoting of his career or whatever. And yeah, so I think you're right. I think we have lots of reasons to love him.
0: So he got his wish of being loved, even though he didn't try.
1: Maybe that's right, or being worthy of being loved. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Good for him. Okay, this was good. All right. I like this.
1: All right. Okay. I'm less terrified.
0: Okay, everybody. Uh, there's more stuff like this, or even different from this, next week. <laughs> bye, bye. Bye. Thank you.
1: This podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt and edited by me, Taylor Carman. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Terrifying Questions.